Welcome back to the Geminit podcast, the second half of springtime on Cold Comfort Farm. My name is Sherry, and I am here with retired opera singer and book author Cynthia. How are you doing today? I'm just doing great. The sun is finally shining here, which we haven't seen in a few days. Mm -hmm. Um, Springtime is terrible because we suffer from something called Muddy Farm. Sometimes I call it mud and blood. (laughs) Just the very last thing you want to slip and fall on. (laughs) So we were talking about having alpacas, and I wanted to ask you, what is the most surprising thing about owning alpacas, about alpacas? Coming from horses and goats, whenever a horse lays down and is very still, you worry that it's dead, it's colicking, uh-huh. you know, you have to run over and see if it's breathing. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just not a natural thing. And I didn't know that alpacas just lay down like that and look dead. And so for about a week, I was racing up to these alpacas and startling them. <laughs> Because I was afraid they were ill, <laughs> if not dead. That took quite a bit of getting used to. Now now it's okay. They just sunbathe and, and totally shut down and rest uh-huh. that way. But it, it's a little bit shocking. Do they all do all of their sleeping lying down or do they sleep on their feet too? No, all of it is lying oh. down totally still. You can't even see them breathing. So it's really quite different than a horse. <laughs> I, that is surprising. I had absolutely no idea. Yeah. And then uh, one of the other things is they make holes all over your farm. Uh-huh. Uh, Cushing holes. Cushing is when they uh, kneel down. There are these big holes where each of them like to lie, which is handy in one way because we know where they're sleeping. Uh-huh. And we can also severn powder uh, those holes so that we make sure they don't get mites or parasites or anything. Uh-huh. The other thing that they do in the same area that's quite shocking is they all defecate. Your entire herd defecates in one spot. So they all just kind of line up to do their business, <laughs> which also makes it very handy in springtime because you're looking for signs of parasites. Uh-huh. And so if you notice that they've got a bad shape and poo-poo, then you know that it's time to hit them with the dewormer even before shearing. Usually uh-huh. I like to wait till the shearer comes, but springtime is quite dangerous on a farm. With parasites, you can lose an entire herd because uh, things come alive in the in the ground that mm-hmm. you just don't have any control over. Mm-hmm. And this year's been quite wet, so it's mm-hmm. going to be dangerous. So we're watching all the time. And them all going in the same spot makes cleanup easier, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. Yeah. And alpaca poop is very good for the garden. Uh-huh. You, not unlike horse poop where you have to wait for it to age a little bit uh-huh. and compost. You can use fresh alpaca. Uh-huh. right away so so are they pellets like sheep and goats and rabbits or? yes uh-huh. yes it should be small poop like that okay yeah <laughs> you probably never thought you were going to talk about alpaca poop uh, on your podcast this is a midwestern podcast I mean, what else are we going to talk about farming runs deep in our roots okay <laughs> Well, I always thought, that's why I went to the Conservatory of Music, so I could scoop poop all day. (laughs) One nice thing about as an alpaca is they hum. That's how they Uh communicate, and the llama. And so it's not totally foreign to them when I break into song. (laughs) 
I don't think we'll be forming our own band, however. Yeah. <laughs> so do the alpaca and the llamas get along together? Yes. Okay. Actually, when the goats are sleeping in, I catch Dolly, the llama, running over and grazing with the alpaca. Okay. But by the time they wake up, she's right back with them. Uh-huh. The other thing we found just last week is we didn't know while we were sleeping, Dolly was jumping the fence <gasps> and going out by the road. Uh-huh. And the neighbors were getting quite used to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> Finally, somebody called <laughs> and said, um... You might be looking for your llama because we heard on the police radio that there's a llama out. We're the only people in the neighborhood with a llama. And that is just quite embarrassing that she's been doing this uh-huh. while we're sleeping farmers. So uh-huh. we've been having to get up earlier. So that means she was putting herself back? <laughs> yes. Just in time to be fed. Uh, well, okay. I could see it for food. I've never had an animal get out of the fence and then put themselves back. Oh, They no. go out and they go on a walkabout and you have to go find them. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's a very sly llama. <laughs> I'm going to have to write a children's book about her, I think. Definitely. Yeah. Especially now that she's got a reputation. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you said you got them as a um, Mother's Day gift. Where did you get them from? Well, we drove all the way to Nebraska uh-huh. for our first ones. And then it was August when um, somebody put out Loretta Lynn. Uh, that was her not original name, mm-hmm. but she was in a petting zoo in western Kansas mm-hmm. in August and needed to be rehomed. And so we drove the horse trailer out to western Kansas in the summertime and got her, and and uh, she's just been quite delightful. Uh-huh. And she likes to show any new animal around the farm. Oh. Yeah, she'll, she'll run them around. Now this is the orchard, and then she'll take them over to the pond and the barns and and she's the tour guide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So how does a petting zoo um, alpaca, was that the llama or the alpaca? That was the alpaca. How does a petting zoo alpaca compare to a non-petting zoo alpaca when it comes to temperament? Well, she should be friendlier, uh-huh. but she's not. <laughs> and I think that's why they were looking to rehome her. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, she was halter broken. So she will lead quite nicely, but really she wants nothing to do with us. And I do a no-no in the summertime. I'm so worried about them overheating. Uh, When it's very hot, I fill tiny play pools from Walmart. And Mm -hmm. uh, then they come over when they hear the water running. And uh, two of them will kind of fight over the play pools and cushion. She's one of the bossy ones that Mm -hmm. will, she and Carrie, get quite attached to the play pool. Everybody else just gets their legs sprayed. So is that a no-no because of the fleece and matting or for some other reason? Uh, Some people are afraid that they will drink out of the play pool after it's been kind of fouled up by their their bodies. But we drain the play pool right away when they get out so and turn it over. So that's not it. But they kind of look funny, you know, sticking up out of a play pool. (laughs) (laughs) All regal. They are quite regal looking animals, I think. Uh They are. I agree with that. Although a lot of them are like floofy teddy bear looking ones too. Yes. Yeah. But of course in the summertime they've already been short uh-huh. so there's nothing there there. <laughs> <laughs> so how friendly are they? Not. Not? Okay. <laughs> yeah they're not social. Goats and horses are quite social. They want to know what you're doing, what uh-huh. you're reading. If you're sitting outside and eating they come right up to you. And the alpaca are just aloof. Now they stay close to the house 
mainly because I think they feel safer around us. Uh But truly, they don't want to be coddled or talked to or petted. And there are some alpaca farmers that even keep a diary of when a stranger's on the property, they think that it really affects the growth and the crimp. Or if a a dog gets loose somewhere Mm. and spooks them, then they they diary all of this so that when they send their fiber off to be examined, they can take it right back to an incident that happened on their farm that disturbed their animals. So they really like a nice zen-like mm-hmm. <laughs> atmosphere. Do they tolerate you or do you have to mostly leave them alone like cows in a pasture or do you still get out with them anyway? I get out with them anyway. <laughs> and and since I found out they really love green apples, uh-huh. they're interacting with me more. And in the summertime when I have that hose out and I'm ready to cool them down, they're my best buddies. Okay. Yeah. And what about the llamas? Because since llamas are pack animals and not fiber animals, do they have a better temperament or not? I think that our llama does. Uh Uh, I'm not sure about every llama because this is my first one. But when I go to shear one of the llama's goats, because she thinks she's the mother of them all, Mm -hmm. she'll bend her neck over mine and watch what I'm doing and make sure that they're okay. When I'm when a goat is ha- giving birth, she'll do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just much more interactive with us than the alpaca. Alpaca are so easy, though, because until springtime, you basically have nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> They're so independent. And they don't take, you know, your, the time that horses do with mixing different grains and mm-hmm. foods and things for them. They're out there grazing. I enjoyed rabbits for that reason. They really didn't want to be played with. They tolerated it because they didn't have any choice when I did brush them or play with them. But <laughs> they really, they really were like, yeah. You can leave me alone now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be fine. Yeah. My horses will try and climb in the car with me, but not mm-hmm. my, not my alpaca. And when I see these films on, on the news or on Facebook of alpacas getting in the backs of these cars coming home from a parade, I'm thinking, I don't think mine are related at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next up is mulligans. Do you have anything for that? Oh, well, I would have to pick and choose because a mulligan happens to me almost every day. Uh Uh-huh. But the biggest, the largest one looming in my life, no pun intending, was (laughs) weaving. I warped my loom incorrectly, as I said earlier in the last episode, and uh, it takes so long to warp a loom. It takes me on my own about four days, and it's backbreaking work, and it's from the front of the loom and the back of the loom, and and quite detailed work. And I had this dream scarf pattern that I wanted to achieve, and I read the warp wrong. Uh huh. And warped for about a, I wove for about a foot and decided, nope, it's got to be cut and done again. Well, a lovely friend of mine who has her own uh, sheep farm and herd is kind of my weaving guru in the neighborhood. And and she and my daughter lovingly rewarped it with me. So it only took two afternoons mm-hmm. to do that with three of us working on it. And they were very patient with me. I just 
uh, wove about six inches and the pattern of my dreams is actually happening on my loom. So it's, there's a happy ending. Uh-huh. Yeah. So on the, all the weaving I've done, I have rewarped like a segment, like an inch or, you know, a thread that's gotten out of place where, you know, the pattern is out and there's just a little bit where I lost count or something, either by putting in new heddles or, you know, replacement heddles mm -hmm. or um, I had the right number of heddles, but they weren't the wrong thing. If it came to the whole warp being wrong, I am pretty sure I would weave whatever fabric that made and then start over from scratch rather than taking it off the loom and retrying it. Well, let me think about that. How far in the process were you? Had you beamed it up yet? Oh, you, yes. Yeah, you'd beamed it up and you'd woven it some because yes. you said that. Yeah, at that point, I would just be um, making new plans and going through and I would not redo it at that point. If I had noticed before I'd beamed it and it was all on the heddles, maybe I would pull it out and redo it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'd pull it out and throw all the yarn away in anger. <laughs> I had a lot of money invested in this yarn. Yeah, okay. And the other thing that is I was experimenting with flax, and mm -hmm. I don't know if you've woven with flax, but oh my goodness, it stretches so much. I've done it with linen, but uh -huh. not with flax. Although really, what's the difference? Well, I'm not quite sure. Just okay. that's what I bought. and. Okay. And I bought this very expensive wool and mm -hmm. worked it with the flax and the wool. And, and I was just determined to get the scarf of my dreams. Yeah. That was in a magazine. <laughs> and it so was not the scarf of my dreams. <laughs> but again, it was only my second you know, warp so, on a loom. So I was forgiving of myself. And if I hadn't had the guru there, uh -huh. I, at my disposal, I probably, it would be sitting in my dark room uh -huh. and I would never touch it again. <laughs> I do that. Yes. I do that. And I only have, I have a certain limit of fixing mistakes and a certain amount of tolerance to just living with them too. Mm -hmm. And since that's an all over pattern, mm -hmm. it's not, you know, single threads that scream, I am broken in this over thing, but the all over mm -hmm. mistake I can call that a design feature, but <laughs> that is not when I have a scarf of my dreams in mind. Yeah, and many invested, uh -huh. yeah. So for me, I've been spinning gradient yarns, and I have an end goal of a gradient sweater where it will be one color at the top and a different color at the bottom, and the spun yarn go all the way in between. So I mathed it out of using some geometry um, that I found a designer, blogs designers had given me the, the equation. I didn't have to make up the equation because that's beyond me. But I figured out how much yarn the body was going to take and the yoke was going to take and the sleeves were going to take because it's a top-down sweater. So it's going to be all one yarn for the yoke and then there will be the yarn to knit each sleeve and the yarn to knit the body. So I was um, weighed everything out to the gram. I carded them together with my hand carters. I had it all set out. I had the uh, two piles of fiber for the yoke and the two piles of fiber for the body and the two piles of fiber for the sleeves. 
three or four days later, I realized I actually needed four piles of fiber for the sleeves. <laughs> yes, it is. And they're all blended out in roll lags. And I'm not even sure I can divide each roll lag enough into the grams to make the sleeves match. I might have to buy the fiber over again to do the sleeves. Oh. Yeah. And it doesn't want to be a vest. It might be. In <laughs> fact, I'm looking at that and I'm looking because it's all beautiful, but it, it's in the dark room right now. It's in time it's out for being naughty out. and I'm, I'm just not even, I think the dream of that particular yarn, the sweater is still alive, but making it the sweater out of that color, uh-huh. that might be dead. <laughs> oh, and what weight was, were you going to spend? Um probably a worsted or Aran weight. Uh, it, I haven't started the spinning process yet. Mm -hmm. I was doing two. Another one was in the in more of a lace weight, uh, fingering to lace. Mm -hmm. And that one, that one is divided up correctly, I think. But that is one that I divided up last summer. I need to go back and check. But it could be that this light bulb moment I had didn't even occur to me last summer when I did it. Also have to check and make sure I labeled the bags well because I labeled them but it was also like I'm not going to forget. I'm so excited about this. I'm going to get right on this and get going. And then other things happened and it got put away and they fell out of the closet and they got put back in the box and now I am not sure that everything is exactly where they need to be for me to pull this off. I still have a gradient. I could still make a gradient shawl or a gradient vest, like you said, mm -hmm. with no problems. Mm -hmm. But this whole sweater idea that I have, where there will be the yoke section and the body section and the two sleeve sections, that one, um, I might have to give it a third try because I am learning stuff as I go just through the carding process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, recently I decided I was bagging patterns with what they wanted to be when they uh -huh. grew up yarn because I was coming across bags that are just now mysteries to me. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I've started diarying and putting swatches in my diary too. Uh -huh. I think I'm getting old. <laughs> so I just can't remember. <laughs> when it comes to the yarn itself as a blank canvas, I even if I buy it with something in mind, if I can't remember later, it's fine because that means it's brand new yarn that I can use for something else. Uh, same with hand spun. That doesn't bother me. If I can't remember what it's for, then it's not for that anymore and then it's a clean slate. Uh, um, my problem is projects that are three-fourths done mm. and then get set aside for a mistake or lost interest or whatever is coming back to those. Mm -hmm. But um, I do use Ravelry a lot. I should use it even more and put even better notes in it because my notes aren't very good. Often they're enough to get me going again. Mm -hmm. I haven't used that too much because uh -huh. I like being able to just run to my book uh -huh. and open it up and say, oh, that's what I was doing. Or uh -huh. yes, um, you know, when I have to spin for an order or a customer, being able to to go right to my wheel ratio yeah. and my yarn and, and pick it up again because I get interrupted by emergencies. Imagine having fiber emergencies, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a really good point. After Ply Away last year, I 
bought a pound, let's say a pound, of some sparkly roving. And it was in um, four ounce lots. And I spun three of them up right away in a fit of passion, like as fast as you can spin up 12 <laughs> ounces into um, lace weight, not lace weight like you're talking about, but the final project is pretty like thin. your gold yarn. Uh-huh. So a fingering weight. Mm-hmm. But then the other four ounces got put aside for quite a while. And when I went to spin it, it does not match. Yes. Yes. It's, yeah, it doesn't match. I don't ply until I'm completely done. And Mm -hmm. I did mark it. And I will save that for last. So it will be the, I'll need to make sure that um, I do it on both sleeves. It'll be like from the elbow down of both sleeves. Oh, perfect. Or just the cuffs of both sleeves. Right. Oh, and then also the... um, cuff at the bottom mm-hmm. of my sweater and also the um, ribbing at the top of the sweater too mm-hmm. so that way it will look intentional and I have hope that because it's still the same color it matches that way it's just the weight is not as thin mm-hmm. that um, I believe I can blend it in but I'm sort of hoping I don't need it <laughs> <laughs> at the other time I'm wondering if I can get a whole sweater out of a pound I've done it so thin, I feel like I can. You probably can. I think I can. That was what I thought when I bought it. When I bought it, I was like, I really need five of these for a sweater. But that's going to completely break my budget. It would stop me from being able to buy stuff at a different booth. And I like buying from three to five booths. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'll get four and just spin it thinner. And that that was my thought process at the time. And what I did. <laughs> so what color is this gradient sweater? The gradient sweater I messed up was um, blue to brown. Ah, okay. Yeah. The blue to brown is the body of it, but then the yoke is going to be also gradients, but greens with uh, with patterning in mm-hmm. it. The color work sweaters that are so popular right now. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, let's talk about your book, The Lace Makers of Right Road. Well, I live in a community of only about 6,000 people mm-hmm. right now. Um, and I think it's quite amazing that onto my road, just a few farms away, a lady from Belgium moved there. Uh, Willa Orendorf is her name. And she's also a lace maker. Uh-huh. And I thought, what are the chances? Uh-huh. And we just hit it off. And she had a shop on the square in Butler and co- uh, consigned my designs and some of my yarn in there. But just it was inspiration all of the time with show and tell with her. And uh, we loved drinking tea together and then a lady from Sweden also moved on to our our road we're uh-huh. quite an international group we try and get together once a week but I was spinning one day and a lot of times I have a narrative running in my head when I'm mm-hmm. spinning I write poetry or think about things to write down I problem solve at my wheel it's very meditative but this book started flowing through my head about about the lace makers on right road and I thought well we've got to share this with mm-hmm. the world that this happened and that we're sisters practically 
I taught her to ride horses, which was one of her lifelong dreams. So it's not just lace making. And it's about our journey in life to landing on right road, both uh -huh. of us. And then we also included our patterns, our original designs in the back. I think there's about six patterns. And if you pre-order the book uh, through Facebook, The Lacemakers of Right Road, uh, she's got a, a free scarf pattern that you okay. received this month. So that would be something that maybe your listeners would want to do. Well, very nice. That is very interesting. I got to flip through it before the, before the podcast, and it's beautiful. Thank you. And it was amazing just sitting at my spinning wheel. I had composed most of it in my head, so it only took me two evenings to write the book. Uh-huh. The hardest part was wrapping the book up because, of course, the journey continues. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of lace do you make? Well, I make knitted lace mainly. Mm -hmm. I had been a crocheter in my young life with my grandmother. Then when I learned to knit, I discovered yarn overs like day three. <laughs> and I was off designing lace before I knew what happened. I had the shawl coming out in four different lace patterns coming down on this uh, shawl. And I only had cheap yarn because there was nothing but Walmart for me to, mm -hmm. to buy yarn in, and which I was totally dissatisfied with. Yeah. But it's what I had. And uh, started designing and getting on Ravelry the next month. And that's when I discovered alpaca. Uh -huh. And just, I was trying to get good yarn in a small town. Uh-huh. <laughs> So that's mainly what I do. But Willow tats, and she does bobbin lace, mm -hmm. and she's also a, a lace knitter, and she crochets. So you'll find in the back of the book just patterns for every kind of lace. Yeah, when I was flipping through it, I thought it wasn't all knitted, so mm -hmm. I had to ask about that. Yeah. Tatting. I took like a three-hour class at a, one of those small conventions, on tatting, so I got to do like a little daisy. Yes. Yeah, and it was so much fun. Was it shuttle tatting or needle tatting? It was needle tatting. Yes. Yes. I have learned the needle tatting, uh -huh. and I picked up a couple of books last year on vacation in Colonial Williamsburg. They had them in the in the gift shop, and so many patterns that I have to get through. Uh huh. But I also bought the shuttle tatting kit. Uh huh. There. And I'm intimidated. I have no idea what I'm doing, so I'm going to have to take a class from Willow. Well, the, the <laughs> reason I was so hesitant into answering was we did use needles because none of us had shuttles. We, mm -hmm. It was a beginner class and that you can easily bring a yarn needle. But I had the idea it was exactly the same thing except for you were manipulating a needle instead of a shuttle. Well, uh, I didn't realize that they could be different. Although I do understand that manipulating the shuttle it will be a whole new skill. That's it. Yeah. That's that's what I'm missing. It is exactly the same arch. I uh -huh. mean, it's the half hitches, but it's definitely manipulating it with that shuttle uh -huh. and holding your your uh, yarn in a different position. So it's definitely going to take me going yeah. to a formal class. I have my grandma's shuttle. Oh, uh -huh. how lovely. Yes. yes, and it is lovely, but the shuttle itself, that the romance of it is lovely. The shuttle itself is um, plastic, uh -huh. old plastic. The old <laughs> yes. molded plastic, yes. yes. So from 
somewhere in between the 30s and the 70s. I'm not really sure when the shuttle came from, but it's definitely whatever she just got at the whatever five and dime big box store that she had available in her small Kansas town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have any of her tatting? I do not. Oh. No, the, what I have from that grandma is I got her tools. Mm -hmm. So the ones that I've held onto are her button box, her, um, her tatting shuttle, and a crochet hook that is small enough that I can use it to put beads on knitting. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And um, I know it's hers because she marked it with a pink sparkly nail polish. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's grandma. She was worried. I don't know where she was going, that she was worried somebody was going to take off with her, with her um, crochet hook. Crochet hook. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm exactly the same way. We don't like to share. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we, I do because, you know, it's socially acceptable and all of that. But inside I'm like, stop touching my stuff. Don't <laughs> touch my stuff. <laughs> That's my stuff. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I know some people as they age mark their crochet hooks with uh, nail polish mm -hmm. because they can't actually see which side of those small hooks mm. the hook is on too. So I don't know how that, her eyes were. That could be the case. I never knew her as a crocheter, really. I knew her as an author and a um, painter. And I mean, she just had craft stuff coming out everywhere. And when she went to, um, she moved to live, move in with her daughter. So they were selling the house. I was just given a big box and told, keep what I wanted and uh -huh. those things that's what I wanted out of it uh -huh. but there was feather art supplies which did not age well there was, <laughs> there was a lot of different supplies that did not age well um, but those were the most meaningful to me although I didn't see her using those mm -hmm. themselves but also as a family, I don't think we're very precious about our things. I'm the same way, you know, you make it, you wear it, you wear it out, you give it away. I do have quite a bit around, but nothing, I don't think about it being passed on uh -huh. very much. I think I'm just the opposite. Mm -hmm. I've got my great, great grandmother's quilt from when she um, crossed the prairie in a covered wagon and the garden club um, in Oregon. Uh-huh. Uh, had made her a friendship quilt. Oh, nice. And I've rebound it and everything I hold on to. It just kind of looks like I live in an antique shop, I think, uh -huh. from family heirlooms. I can't bear to give them up. But both of my grandmothers were lace crocheters. Mm -hmm. So I think I came to it naturally. Okay, podcast announcements. Visit Cynthia's Facebook page, The Lace Makers of Right Road, and order your pre-copy of the book by the same name. Also, join the Geminet Podcast group on Ravelry and follow us on Instagram at Geminet Podcast. In Ravelry, we have an ongoing thread of 20 hats in 2020. You can post your hats in that thread and also tag them with GP20Hats2020. Then on Instagram, you can tag them, hashtag Geminet Podcast and hashtag GP20Hats2020. And then if you want to just make 20 of anything in 2020, that is hashtag GP20in2020. 
I am sort of thinking about doing 20 sweaters in 2020, <gasps> although the one I just showed you is sweater number two, so, mm. Mm. but I have, I have so many on the needles that I feel like I can do it. And you must have so many in your head then. You must dream <laughs> of sweater making. I do. That's, that is what I do, mostly. I do other things too, but I consider myself a sweater maker. Mm -hmm. All right. At the table. So any good food recently? Oh, well, I have to talk about my neighbors. Uh -huh. I, I, I have such wonderful neighbors from around the world, and I invited them and their spouses to... Uh, both Christmas and Thanksgiving this year, and discovered that they hadn't ever tried duck. So I made roast duck with orange sauce, and then the next time I made it with cherry sauce. And I also made my favorite soup for the holidays. And I don't know if it's because I love getting my little cream soup bowls out with mm -hmm. the double handles and showing <laughs> them off or not. But I make a uh, champagne squash soup. That sounds amazing and, and then, fancy. Yeah, very fancy. And uh, it turned out the men didn't like duck, but the women were just all for it. So uh -huh. I wonder if that's just a female thing. But everybody brought dishes from their own countries, and it was really quite nice. We hope more international people move to Right Red. Yeah. <laughs> I've only had duck one time, and I was six, so I can't remember anything beyond the fact that we had duck for Christmas one year. Mm. Well, on my recent trip to London last summer, I discovered in the theater district a Chinese restaurant that only served duck. Uh huh. So maybe 30 different duck dishes were on the menu. Uh -huh. Well, I didn't want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to return because I only tried two. I love going to restaurants like that. Yeah. Something fun and different. So I actually don't have anything. It's only, I haven't cooked since the last time I recorded. So I've just been eating a lot of Dairy Queen frozen treats because I've been on the go so much. And that's not really worthy of discussing. Oh, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably make it in the podcast, but. <laughs> well, one time on the way home from the art museum, my husband was hard of hearing and uh -huh. he sat in the back seat. And I said, does anybody feel like. A blizzard, mm -hmm. and a Heath Bar blizzard was what I said. And he said, oh, I'll try a deep fried lizard. <laughs> and he says, what's it like? And I said, crunchy. So anytime anyone mentions Dairy Queen, uh -huh. that's all I can think of are deep fried lizards. <laughs> and now that's going to be the only thing I can think about, too. <laughs> On the horizon... First off is, because we're in Cass County right now, I didn't say before, but we are courting in a park. Do you remember the name of the park? Heritage Park, I think. Yeah, there's more to it that. We'll call oh, it that. We'll we're recording that. in Heritage Park in Bolton, right off of their historical downtown. I did some Googling, and I found out that the Cass County Yarn Addicts meet weekly on Wednesdays at the Cass County Public Library, the Northern Resource Center in Belton, Missouri. So check that out. And I think you had some stuff too? Well, in October, we participate in three festivals uh -huh. where we demonstrate. And the first uh, Tuesday of the month is in Adrian Park down in Bates County. And it's kind of a frontier village setting. 
we set up a factory for fourth graders that come from all over the state and sometimes even across the state line in Kansas because we are a border town. Mm -hmm. We set up a factory that has to do with fiber. Last year, we set up a sock factory, oh, and fun. it really brought home to kids, you know, if you get a hole in your sock, you can't just run out to Walmart, and, uh -huh. and it, it would take 10 hours, you know, uh -huh. to, to knit you a new sock, and if you had to spin the yarn, you know, even longer. So we start with the raw fiber and take them through whatever it is. Sometimes we discuss dyeing uh, and natural dyes with them. But what was very interesting last year with these fourth graders is I was spinning some lace weight, and they said, "What this? What is this for?" And I said, "Well, it's for lace." And they said, "You mean like shoelaces?" Not one of the fourth graders that came through about two hundred that day knew what lace was. Yeah, that just blows my mind. It blows your mind, doesn't uh -huh. it? Then the next one that comes up is Missouri Town, the eighteen fifty-five days, mm -hmm. and we dress up in. Uh, pre-Civil War uh, costumes, and we're out there in the Lost Art section, and we are spinning and weaving and dyeing and chatting with people and teaching them about the Lost Arts, and that's uh, one of the two opportunities we have every year to actually sell what we produce and design mm -hmm. on our farm. So my daughter does all the herding, I do all of the designing, and she does the dyeing, mm -hmm. so we split the, the workload up on the farm. And you can talk to us about that out there. And we try and promote fiber farming. Mm -hmm. A lot of people uh, don't think about that when they think about farming, but it's, it's an important thing. Then we do the same thing out at the Shawnee Mission Indian School uh, mm -hmm. out in Kansas uh, the following weekend. So October is very, very busy, and we're so glad that the animals can just graze and be on their own and survive uh -huh. while we're off doing these things because it takes a lot of preparation. But everything that I design all year long goes into the month of October to try and promote. Sounds like a very busy month. And April's very busy, and I'm wondering, as I do this podcast, if I'm going to find out that every month has a whole bunch of stuff like this because I just keep on finding more and more things the longer I do this. Yeah, I keep a calendar for the Fiber Guild uh -huh. of all of the upcoming events and all through the summer you'll still find events. And give the name of that Fiber Guild? The Osage Spinners and Weavers Guild. Okay. And I do the newsletter so if you're interested in joining we try and mentor people and get together. Many of our uh, of our meetings are at the Historic Woods Chapel in uh -huh. Lee Summit. And if you catch us at any of these fiber festivals, just ask about a guild to join because if you're interested in mentoring somebody else or just sitting with us and, and knitting and chatting, uh, we'd love to have you. All right, well, I'm looking forward to joining that. Okay. Last is a local trivia, and I think you had something for that, too. Well, yes, because I live in Bates County. I haven't always lived in Bates County, uh, San Francisco and uh -huh. Cordoba, Spain and Tempe, Arizona. But we needed to find a place pretty quickly to buy in the wintertime, and we found this vacant farm. And... As we refooded the barn two or three times and started getting to really know our land, we started finding objects working their way up through the soil. And we thought, gee, the original homestead isn't where our house is, uh -huh. our modern house. It was down near the barn. 
old coal scoops and antique horseshoes, just everything that, you know, we knew were, wasn't ours is working its way up through the soil there. And then I started learning about the Civil War Order 11, uh, where they burnt all the homesteads and forcibly evacuated these people off these farms. And I realized that we're actually living on an Order 11 farm and started getting uh -huh. interested in that whole Civil War uh, era and what happened here. And then I saw a special on PBS uh, about George Caleb Bingham's house being the women and children's prison uh -huh. during that time in Kansas City and the collapse of it and causing the raids between the the border state of Kansas and Missouri, uh, causing all of this animosity and violence. Mm -hmm. And now I'm thinking there might just be another book in me about finding out more about the original family and, and writing about it, but perhaps that'll be fiction. I'm sure I'll have mm -hmm. to make a lot of it up. Well, that sounds like a new project. You should definitely do it. Yeah. I'll just compose it on the spinning wheel again. <laughs> so I think we've come to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you, Cynthia, for joining us. Well, thank you so much for coming out and interviewing me. And we've had such a beautiful sunny day, and we're just clicking our needles together. It was great to have somebody to chat with. All right. And everybody, thank you for listening. Bye now.